Welcome to the Schwepp. This is going to be a new series of investigations of popular culture. And in our inaugural uh, interview, we have Mr. Rich Ragsdale, who is a filmmaker, a composer, a musician, a creative gentleman, who put together a music video for a song that caught my eye. I got in touch with him, and we're going to talk about this video, and hopefully it's going to lead to some interesting conversations on the way popular culture is created. So, Rich, thanks very much for coming and talking to us. Oh, it's my pleasure. So, first of all, I wonder if you can introduce the music. So, the band, the song, all this kind of stuff. So, the band is the Claypool Linen Delirium, which is uh, sort of a you know modern psychedelic band that's uh, equal parts Sean Lennon and Les Claypool. So, the bass, and, the uh, bass player from Primus meets up with John Lennon's yeah. son. You heard that right. Okay, go on. <laughs> um, and I guess this is technically their second full-length record. They did an EP, I think, well as well, of like prog rock, psychedelic covers. Um, and I've worked for Sean in the past, and also uh, Sean's partner, uh, Charlotte. I've done a lot of music video work with them, and... Uh, Sean uh, called me up and was like, uh, we have a song about Jack Parsons and I'd like you to do a music video for it. It like animated. And uh, I was like, sure. <laughs> Why not? <laughs> yeah. At this uh, stage, did you know, did the name Jack Parsons ring bells? Oh yeah. I was, yeah. I was familiar with Jack Parsons uh, by reputation, you know? Um, and Sean sent me the book, uh, Sex and Rockets, which is a biography of Jack Parsons. And I read it and it, it was pretty interesting. Uh, and then I read another one called Strange Angel, which was actually, I think, written a little better, you know, at least from a sort of storytelling point of view. Mm -hmm. So I got kind of in the weeds with that stuff and then started trying to figure out how to do this thing. Okay. So so listeners to this interview might now want to stop and just have a play of the the YouTube clip of your video and hear the song, because that kind of fleshes out what yeah. you're talking about. So what's your take? Can you give us a rundown of the Aleister Crowley, Jack Parsons saga? Have well, Jack together? Parsons is a pretty, uh, yeah, I mean, he's an interesting figure uh, in, uh, you know, he, he would, he played a sort of a central part in the early American like space program. Cause he invented like solid rocket fuel. But he was uh, sort of an autodidact. He never went to school for any of this stuff. And, you know, he was so he was a rocket scientist, but he also had this interest in the occult and a very like serious interest. I think Jack Parsons took the idea of like magic and shaping the world more seriously than even maybe like Crowley in a way, you know. Um, and so he got in touch with Aleister Crowley and was kind of a, a you know, a disciple of his. And uh, so while he was developing this rocket technology he was also he had a place up in pasadena here in southern california where he was uh performing all these rituals and having all these orgies and you know performing a lot of sex magic and you know it it's a pretty crazy uh story you know pretty wild uh, character yeah this is post-war yeah yes just post -war. yeah so we have yeah go on sorry well they had started developing this stuff right around the time of the war, but right. uh, it didn't, the, the military didn't, and I don't, I don't think really, they didn't become interested in it until after the war. So maybe because they'd seen what, um, 
what good luck the Nazis had had with the rockets and said, oh, maybe there's something in this rocket business. And we got this guy Werner von Braun working for us now, and maybe we can yeah. use this guy Parsons. Gotcha. Crowley at this point is, he's very old. He's in his last days. And most of his right. occult orders have sort of collapsed, except the one in Pasadena, which is doing great. Yeah. So he's sort of corresponding with them. And um, I don't think he ever meets Parsons, but they correspond. No. And he's very excited about Parsons. He's like, there's this young man. He's very intelligent. He has loads of energy. He's on the right track with his occult practice, with his idea, his understanding of magic. This is great. Uh, so then what happens? You know, Jack continues his sort of both his magic workings and, you know, you know, building these uh, rocket engines and testing these things and... Uh, you know, all, there's all sorts of drama that goes on at, at the, what they call the Parsonage, which was his mansion up in Pasadena. And one of the figures that sort of enters his life is uh, L. Ron Hubbard, pre-Scientology. Dun, you know. dun, dun. <laughs> and, you know, it's interesting. I was talking to a friend of mine who is very familiar with the Parsons story. And he actually thinks as much as... Uh, L. Ron Hubbard eventually goes on to sort of rip off Parsons, steals his girlfriend, uh, steals his boat, you know, steals a lot of his money. But he, he thinks that in a lot of ways that that uh, Hubbard was good for Parsons and that like most of the people that showed up at the Parsonage were there for the sex and the drugs, you know, and not so much like true believers. And uh, he really took him serious and indulged Parsons in his like uh, Babylon workings, which was his you know major work in the occult. Right. So this uh, confidence trickster guy, L. Ron yeah. Hubbard, shows up. He um, does. Charms Jack Parsons, sort of gets into some kind of crazy wife swap scenario with him, convinces him that this is the will of the gods, I think, is what happened, something like that. And then well, run- you know, it's interesting because <laughs> Parsons was married and then he left his wife for his wife's sister. And then L. Ron Hubbard stole that woman away from Parsons. You know? Amazing. <laughs> And the rest is history. It's interesting because um, Scientology, you know, in, in the field of Western esotericism that I study, there's a lot of people who would say Crowley, not Western esotericism. It's modern. Mm. He's, he's kind of an atheist in a way. He's not even like a truly... In, 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 there's many problematic things about talking about what he does in terms of religion, you know, problematic. Mm. I'm not saying you can't do it, but scholars of religion have a, a tough time pigeonholing what he's doing. But I would say he's blatantly part of Western esotericism, if only because he uh, he's he's completely immersed in a world, a thought world that was Western esotericism. He's read the ancients. He's read um, medieval and Renaissance books of magic. He's read grimoires. He's read all this stuff. Um, so and and he's in he's you know part of kind of esoteric Freemasonry. So he's definitely esoteric, Western esoteric. But then Elron Hubbard comes in, and you have this new kind of new religious movement, which you might call like a science fiction-y new age style thing, right? Scientology. Mm-hmm. So he, he's, he gets, he cuts his teeth in, at least briefly, in the Pasadena OTO, the old school yes. occultism, which was very modern at the turn of the 20th century, but maybe by the 40s is becoming a bit passe. And then he's going to bring his kind of science fiction expertise into it and create a new thing, which involves spaceships. And uh, <laughs> do you know what I mean? Yes. Well, and it's interesting because Jack Parsons has these sort of three loves where it's, uh, you know, you know, this esoteric sort of occultism, this uh, rocket science and also science fiction. Like he was very 
much a fan of science fiction. Uh, you know, he was friends with Ray Bradbury and, really? you know, a lot of the writers in Los Angeles. Yeah. I didn't know that. I didn't know Bradbury was in Los Angeles. I know he was from uh, Waukegan, Illinois originally, but I, I guess he moved out there. Yeah. Well, I mean, it, it, I think there was a writer's group that like Forrest Ackerman started that Bradbury was part of. And I think Parsons was just kind of like in the background there. I, mean, I know he wasn't a writer, but he was interested. Matter of fact, there was a science fiction novel, The Name Escapes Me right now, but where it's one of the writers, I think, sort of loosely based the character on Jack Parsons. Um, I'll have to look it up. Uh, it's, I'll it's follow you up on me. that. Because, yeah. of course, Crowley appears in um, Somerset Maugham's book, The Magician, as a, as a you know, yes. fictionalized character as well. So it, it's only fair. Um, <clears throat> yes. So just, just following our narrative, what, what happens in the end? Hubbard runs off with Parsons' stuff and goes yes. off to found Scientology. <laughs> and what happens yeah. with Parsons? Well, Parsons then meets Cameroon, which is sort of his, she becomes kind of his muse. And in Parsons' mind, she was, I think, uh, manifested through his Babylonian workings. And right. she becomes kind of, you know, uh, the Eve to his Adam, if you will, you know. And so they were actually getting ready to go. I, I, at this point, you know, he had co-founded JPL, which, you know, Jet Propulsion Laboratories, and uh, he was, I think they were a little troubled with Jack and his reputation. And so he was, I uh, can't remember if it was exactly forced out, but, you know, he, he was, you know, kind of muscled out of his company. And he was going off to, I think, New Mexico with his, his uh, with Cameron. And he uh, accidentally blew himself up. <laughs> you know, he was sort of notorious for keeping all these explosives and stuff around. He'd always just experimented with this stuff his whole life, ever since he was a kid. Yeah. And, you know, the theory is that uh, he dropped a vial of something that was explosive and he reached to catch it and didn't catch it. And it blew him up. That's, the, that's what they assume from his like body you know, position when they found his body and the sort of the nature of the injuries. Of course, there are other people who think he was assassinated, you know, that this was, an, you know, his occultism was interfering with NASA and all this stuff. So, uh, but of course they think that it, NASA seems yeah. to attract uh, conspiracy theories like, oh yeah, nobody's business. I, it's crazy. It is crazy. Yeah. They, they, they're, they're, you know, a lot of the conspiratorial thinking, you know, NASA seems to be an epicenter, you know, as well as like the CIA and, you know, but uh, yeah, but NASA th seems sort of like less likely for some yeah, reason. CIA I mean, at least is very secretive. The CIA know. say we are a secret service, intelligence yes. service. We, we play dirty <laughs> tricks on people. That's our job. Of course they have yes. secrets, right? But but yeah. NASA, I mean, NASA, yeah. they're kind of not doing that. Ostensibly. Exactly. But that just shows that I'm a fool to, uh, and a, a dupe of the new world order. And we'll get to that. Yeah. We'll get to that. Um, so there's the story. How much of this story were you sort of au fait with before you took on this project? I mean, I, I just had a sort of like, you know, layman's sort of understanding of the basic story. You know, I, I'd heard it before, um, right. but I hadn't done a deep dive into it until mm. Sean contacted me about doing the video. Um, so did it blow your mind in any way? Oh, yeah. I mean, it's it just the story just gets weirder as it goes. I mean... And, and, you know, there's a lot of like mythology and, you know, his like self mythologizing and stuff that Jack Parsons did uh, that goes along with the sort of official story. So it just it gets stranger and stranger as it goes. I mean, like even when he was a child, he claimed that he had uh, summoned a demon in his bedroom 
And it scared him so much that he didn't mess with the occult until, you know, he was a teenager later in life, you know, on his own. Um, and, you know, I put a little nod to that in the video itself, you know, so. Like, is that the bit with the giant looming Satan? Yeah. Over the yeah. So it's like him. It's supposed to be him. And uh, Ed Foreman was his friend as a kid. They went on to sort of create this rocket fuel together but as kids they were experimenting with toy rockets that's how they became interested in solid rocket fuel and you know they used to accidentally set all these fires and stuff uh, so uh i sort of conflated those two things you know he and ed sort of burning down fields of you know empty fields in california and uh you know jack summoning a demon right i don't know how much you know about the one step earlier in the um in the creative process but how does sean lennon get into this story is, is it is it he that wrote the lyrics and stuff yeah he wrote the lyrics you know i mean sean sean is interested in a lot of things i mean he's a very bright guy and he's really interested in a lot of esoteric stuff he's also very much interested in science and you know so the jack parson story is great because it dovetails with both of those things mm. you know you know, he's very interested in psychedelic music now. And, and, you know, of course, that dovetails with a lot of like um, mystic. There's a lot of mysticism and magic and demons and all that stuff. And historically in, in prog rock and psychedelic rock. So right. it all just kind of is of a piece. And, you know, yeah. I think one thing leads you to another. But but Sean's a very bright guy and he knows a lot about a lot of things. So, Right. So what I would love to get from you is your take on the, the, the making process. So here you are, you, you know, um, in layman's terms, the sort of basic story of Jack Parsons, um, which is, if you think about it, very interesting already that yes. you kind of already know a little bit about this story. That in itself is interesting, right? Because this is sort of secret history. This isn't stuff, this isn't mainstream, well-known stuff, or it wasn't at one time, but maybe it's becoming no. that. Maybe Aleister Crowley is coming a little bit more, like the, I mean, the actual historical figure, coming a little bit more into the spotlight for normal folks. When for a long time he was either just this kind of Satanist, unspeakable evil guy, or someone no one had heard of. Now it's like, oh yeah, that guy, he was like a 20th century occultist. I've heard a little bit about him. But anyway, you, you have that basic background knowledge. And then Sean Lennon comes along, slaps a couple books on your desk and says, read up, I want this video. What happens next? He specifically wanted an animated video. I had just done one uh, in a different style for Charlotte's band, uh, who's kind of his, like I said, his creative partner, uh, girlfriend, you know. And uh, that one was done in more of kind of like a 70s schoolhouse rock, kind of Ralph Bakshi sort of style. And uh, he was impressed with that. But he's, you know, he wanted it. I think in a different style and he referenced like Terry Gill. I was just going like to say, so, I was just going to say, yeah, the way so that was definitely a stylist. Oh yeah. Yeah. Like the kind of cutout style. And so I was trying to sort of do like a Monty Python thing sort of brought, you know, with the new technology, you know, like, like a newer look, you know, sort of keep the aesthetics if I could. Yeah. Uh, and so, you know, the lyrics for the song tell the story of Jack Parsons life in a very brief, you know, truncated way. And so I would use the lyrics as like a sort of a roadmap. And then you get to the choruses and the guitar solo and stuff. And that's where you can really just kind of go on flights of fancy. And it was, I, I you know, I, I, I approached it in a very sort of stream of consciousness sort of way. And I tried to work in 
symbols and, and ideas that would uh, resonate with the whole Jack Parsons thing, you know, the Babylon workings or, you know, the Parsonage and all of these ideas or, you know, you know, NASA and his relationship with NASA and JPL and all that stuff. So uh, I would just sort of take it a scene at a time and I would think, well, what's the best way visually to represent this idea or combine a couple of ideas, you know? I mean, like one is obviously like him blowing himself up and his head flying off into outer space. And that's, you know, like Jack, our space program is indebted to this, you know, you know, magician uh, whose head is like drifting through space now. And with this with his wacky smile on it, kind of looking with his wacky smile. Well, yeah, originally, actually, my my first pass on that, he had a very sort of grotesque kind of face. And Sean was like, yeah, no, that's too gross, man. (laughs) So so my my solution was to make him like almost maniacally happy yeah so yeah so so i should i should mention um for anyone who isn't checking out the video it's it the song's in two parts right it's blood and rockets movement one saga of jack parsons and then movement two the moon yeah and you've got um one video for for this kind of two-part song and the the second part um where we have the deranged floating head of Jack Parsons in space and some astronauts and a, and a Baphomet figure wearing a kind of space helmet. Um, The chorus, there's this sort of, it goes from being very, as you say, very informationally full biography of Jack Parsons to a sonorous chorus of do what thou wilt. Love is the law. And with, I think bowed bass in the background, like bowed upright bass. So that the bass changes and uh, the second part, yeah, it gets a bit more science fictiony and a bit more sort of, cosmic and a bit less occult in a way although you do still yeah. have some flying uh babylonian goddesses and stuff yeah and that's a nod to you know the babylonian workings and also you know like he was trying to sort of manifest this star child or whatever so you know and you know which also kind of dovetails with a movie like 2001 uh and so i was just trying to sort of make all these connections but have fun with it you know and, and just have it be strange and beautiful and weird and um but also everything like i said you know like you have this sort of babylonian goddess flying by and you know cosmic space sperms you know fertilizing you know celestial orbs and things like that you know Hmm. um because you know the babylon workings were all sex magic and all related to ejaculating and yeah so what so you've got your two books about Parsons, Sex and Rockets and Strange Angel. But what what were your sources for more like inside the OTO rituals and this kind of stuff? Well, I did, I did some, some research online, of course. You know, I mean, there's a lot of information out there. Mm-hmm. And then I, I have a friend uh, named Brian who is, you know, very steeped in this stuff. He's a very bright guy. He also manages Kenneth Anger, who I've, I've done some work with. Really? Yeah. Wow. Okay. Yeah. We'll have to come back to that because the the whole um, yeah. Marjorie Cameron story continues with Ken- Kenneth Anger, of course. Yes. Yeah. So you know, I called Brian up. I was about halfway through, you know, doing the video, and just to sort of, you, you know, one one issue is like, you know, there's I'm trying to represent Jack Parsons, but there's not a lot of like photographic material related to Jack Parsons out in the world. So you know, you have to improvise a little bit, and so I'm you know, to use for this kind of cutout style animation. Um, so I called Brian and we were just spitballing stuff and he was telling me, 
you know, he gave me a lot more um, of his sort of insight into Jack Parsons and his relationship with like L. Ron Hubbard in particular. So, I mean, you know, those were the sort of some of the resources I used. And then I just uh, also like, for example, there's a there's also a ritual sort of scene in there where you see Parsons standing over a naked woman and and uh, Crowley enters from one side in, in this sort of Egyptian garb. And then on the other side, here comes L. Ron Hubbard in the same kind of outfit, but with his little sailor hat. You know, it's yeah. it's meant to be a little funny, but you know, they come in and, and, uh, you know, I based the sort of look of the ritual on, um, some imagery I found online of, of, of people from different OTO chapters, you know, doing their own rituals and stuff, you know, like the red curtains and the way that the, the altar looks and, you know, so I love it, but you know, with my, my sort of dopey animated take on it. <laughs> so. I love it though. It, um, one thing I really like well, I really like that scene because you see the historical lineage, this very weird yes. historical lineage from Crowley, who is in a way the sort of last of the old school occultists. I mean, he sees himself as a reincarnation of Eliphaz Levi, who's like the founder of occultism in a way. Um, and Levi, of course, is constructing his stuff based on the Rosicrucian manifestos and you name it, the, the usual Western esoteric fare from the Renaissance and uh, plus a few, plus the tarot and plus um, a few ancient sources and so on. And then in the middle is Jack Parsons, who's who's the future, right? He's he's designing rockets. He's this, this mm -hmm. autodidact Californian kid who's like taught himself chemistry and he's designing rockets and he works for NASA. Um, he literally is using magic to send humanity into outer space. Yes. which is pretty crazy. And then you've got on the next in line, L. Ron Hubbard, who is going to do a new sort of esoteric religious movement that is going fully to embrace futuristic imagery. It's Scientology. It's got, apparently, a whole secret myth at the heart of it about uh, this ancient space lord called Xenu who comes to Earth and enslaves you know, the, the, with spaceships and the whole thing. So it's super science fiction-y, for lack of a better word. Mm -hmm. And also in that scene, got this lovely sort of like red-curtained ritual space, look at, but looking like a stage. And yes. the show busyness of both, you know, Crowley was pure showbiz in a way, for his era. Oh, yeah. And L. Ron Hubbard is pure showbiz in another way. Like, I mean, literally, he's he, the, the Church of Scientology actively recruits Hollywood big names and sort of gives them the red carpet treatment so that they can, I guess, pull more people into Scientology because Tom Cruise is a Scientologist or whatever. So there's this showbiz hmm. aspect that I really like. I, I based the, uh, the, the sort of the background on um, sort of older, like Victorian paper theaters, you know, the like kids would play that maybe Jack would have even played with when he was a kid, you know? So, you know, I thought that was kind of, I mean, it, it, it looked cool. It sort of fit the aesthetic and, but it, it also has, I think, yeah, I mean, I think you're very astute in sort of picking up on that idea of it being stagey, you know, I mean, the whole thing is very artificial because it's animated, but it has that yeah theatrical quality in that particular shot. I love it. Now, before we get onto the pop culture reaction to this bit of pop culture, which is absolutely astounding. Um, 
I wonder, I don't know if this is appropriate or not, but I'd love to get into the Kenneth Anger angle of it, if possible. I didn't, to be honest, I didn't know Kenneth Anger was still around and still... He's still alive. He's not really doing that much right now, as far as I know. But yeah, he's here in uh, in L.A. So Kenneth Anger is someone I don't know that much about, but I do know that he he wrote this book called Hollywood Babylon, which is like a, a sleazy expose of the naughty things Hollywood actors got up to, but in like the early days of Hollywood, like the 20s and 30s, these old sort of silent film actors and the kind of crazy parties they would go to and this sort of thing. Um, I read that book years ago. It's it a good read. And then he, he, in the 60s, he made these films that many of our listeners will be familiar with because they're sort of legendary by now. Like, is it Invocation of My Demon Brother? Invocation of My Demon Brother, uh, Lucifer Rising, uh, Inauguration of the Pleasure Dome. Right. Yeah. So he went to the, the, he made like a pilgrimage to the site of Crowley's above the mm-hmm. Lemma in, in Italy. He <clears throat> filmed there and he um, made these sort of, well, I would say esoteric, perhaps a bit surrealist films with lots of ritual in them. Tons yeah. of ritual. Maybe even, maybe even more than a little surrealist. Yeah. But yes. But yeah. super 60s, super occult, yes. 60s occult revival and very much like, the first wave of people rediscovering Crowley and in the sixties at a time when everyone was trying to have their mind blown in a new way and going, this is how you blow your mind, Alistair Crowley. This is the stuff. So this guy, Kenneth Anger, he made these films and uh, what's he done since? What's he been up to? Well, he, I think sort of disappeared from view for a long time. And then my friend Brian was doing uh, i think it was a documentary on like the manson family or something like that and he went and interviewed bobby Beausoleil in prison i think this is correct now you know maybe i can hook you up with brian he can correct the story if i'm wrong but he met bobby Beausoleil in prison who while he was in prison you know he was a member of the manson family but while he was in prison he actually wrote the music for lucifer rising right from prison it was supposed to be jimmy page and apparently Ken hated Jimmy Page's music or something happened. And then, you know, he ended up using uh, Bobby Beausoleil's music. Uh, and I think he had known Bobby before he had gone to prison. So Bobby did the music for Lucifer Rising and that led Brian to kind of seek him out. And I think at the time, Ken was kind of living a sort of hermetically sealed sort of existence in a bungalow somewhere like in East Hollywood or something. And, uh, to Brian's credit, I really think he kind of got Ken back out there and, you know, they uh, re-released a lot of his films on DVD and kind of introduced Kenneth Anger to a new generation. And I had been aware of uh, Ken because I'd seen his films on the Mystic Fire videotape series in the like late 80s. I think they put that stuff out. So once Brian hooked up with Ken and was kind of managing him, I imagine still does, you know, he he did a lot of work with with Ken, and Ken did a few other things after that. And uh, and Brian and and Ken were doing some music together. They had a band called uh, Technicolor Skull. It was very just kind of like noise band, kind of very cool, weird stuff. And so, and Brian had made a film that's very much in the style of like a Kenneth Anger film called Night of Pan, and I did a lot of music for it and some animation for that, like some stop motion stuff, and you know. It's a it's a very cool movie if you get a chance to check it out. Yeah. So 
I would have thought that Kenneth Anger's time would have come, you know, like people would be ringing him up and going, my God, Kenneth Anger, can you come curate this film festival? Can you, you know, you're amazing. You're a legend. Yeah. I mean, I, well, I think that that's probably more the case now, you know, yeah. I mean, cause like, like, like I said, I mean, he's, he, I think he was, he's sort of just his style of filmmaking, that kind of like esoteric sort of thing kind of fell out of favor for a while in the, in the mainstream or in, even in the mainstream underground, if that makes any sense, you yeah. know, kind of gave way more to like, you know, that kind of like Joel Peter Witkin kind of S and M E kind of stuff and all that. And, but now I think there's a lot more interest in, 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 in these things. And yeah. so, well, yeah. that well, that is a, a fascinating and unexpected tidbit to this story that I and am delighted. In, by. in my first video with Sean, I I put a nod to Kenneth Anger. At, I mean, the whole thing stylistically is kind of similar to his work, but at the end, there's like Sean summons a bunch of UFOs. It, it, it's meant to be sort of like the UFOs that show up at the end of Lucifer Rising. Right. You know? Little so. homage. Now. I contacted you to do this interview like a good month or two ago and we did, we, you were busy and I was busy and so on, but we finally made it happen. And in the meantime, a video has come out on YouTube. This is a video uh, on a YouTube channel called a call for an uprising. And (laughs) the video (laughs) is the name of the video is this is officially the most ridiculous music video I have ever seen. And it's about (laughs) your video that we've been talking about. So this guy is some flavor of fundamentalist Christian who thinks, quote, the occult controls the world, end quote, and is basically saying this video is full of all this symbolism. It's, it's satanic. It's to do with blood sacrifice and it's to do with pedophilia because that's what Aleister Crowley was all about. He was, he was satanic. He was into pedophilia. Um, and he wanted to bring about the end days. That's what these Satanists want. They want to bring about the end days. Now, in a way, Crowley does want to bring about the end. He wants to bring about the end of an old world order and the beginning of a new world order. But that's another. <laughs> there's obviously a little more to what Crowley was thinking than this uh, Christian fundamentalist gets. Um, so this guy has... I haven't spent too much time uh, investigating his delightful worldview, but it, it clearly... in it, It's a fully framed conspiracy theory where the world is run by illuminati they are occultists like sort of satanic occultists and they're working for satan himself sort of thing and that means that uh, you are working for satan himself and presumably (laughs) (laughs) presumably quite consciously it's not like you're a dupe of satan and and you're um no no, it's like you actually were contacted by the Brotherhood and they said, you will make this video and it will have all these, you know, upside down pentagrams in it and stuff mm-hmm. because it's a bit, that's where the logic breaks down. Like, why would the this secret Illuminati Brotherhood want to do this, make this video and sh- sort of show their hand? Do you know what I mean? But anyway, we don't have to find a kind of rationale to this. How fascinating. And the other thing that I found really fascinating about this video is, so on the one hand, this guy's kind of, I guess like an a sort of an old school fundamentalist like he thinks you know the the modern world's going to shit and we need to rally around Jesus and this sort of thing but on the other hand he's he's super hyper modern in that he says things like this band with the Lennon Claypool Deli- Claypool Lennon Delirium they only have like 17,000 YouTube subscribers that's pathetic I've got way more YouTube subscribers than they have so <laughs> so he's like this sort of 
social media savvy, rather petty uh, YouTube guy on the one hand. And on the other hand, he's, yeah. a, you know, he's trying to wake people up to the satanic threat. And then at the end of the video, he encourages people to buy his T-shirts. Does he? I didn't. I have to yes. say, I didn't quite get to oh, the yeah. end of the video. He's okay. like, go to my website and buy my T-shirts. You know, <laughs> right? So. so he's got the little, the little financial angle there as yeah. well. So maybe, yeah, he may have a little, like a uh, little uh, uh, L. Ron Hubbard in him too. Who knows? You know. <laughs> well, it's not a coincidence that um, uh, fundamentalist, a certain brand of fundamentalist Christianity in America, is intimately tied up with the request for money. Oh man. Well, you know, it, it, it's interesting, you know, uh, the first sort of like, uh, let me say like big music video I ever did, or, or, you know, it's my first like really high profile music video that I got hired to direct is very low budget, but it was for, uh, Avicii and Lenny Kravitz. They'd done a song together. And so I did this video and it's just, it's, you know, it's meant to be kind of a fun video. And this kid finds a Walkman in the street and he takes it home and he listens to it and it forces him to dance. Like he can't stop dancing and he starts having these kind of psychedelic hallucinations. And then his head explodes with a giant rainbow and you go into this like rave world full of all these kind of rave characters. And then, uh, you go inside his head and, you know, I worked with these other animators and we did what I thought at the time was just sort of common, sort of psychedelic imagery like pyramids and eyeballs and you know like roses like you know skulls and and the kids like the comments on the video and it was all kind of done in this sort of 80s meet 60s kind of it was supposed to be kind of like this kind of psychedelic reverb you know where it's like cultural reverb where it's like all these different psychedelic errors are kind of crashing together right but these kids started posting, they were like, oh my God, the Illuminati got a Vici. I was just like, what the hell are they talking about? And this was the first sort of time I had run into this idea that these kids are out there like looking for Illuminati uh, symbols or satanic symbols or whatever in these music videos. And that somehow, I, I've never, like you say, I've never understood what the purpose would be of doing that. Unless it's like some kind of way of secretly hypnotizing the masses, or something. I, I, it doesn't really make a lot of sense. Yeah, um, I think that is actually what this guy, uh, the uh, call for an uprising guy, is saying. He's like, you know, they're they're getting bolder and they're they're trying to indoctrinate you. So you think you think it's just entertainment. You think it's artistic expression. Ha ha, fools! Wake well, up mean, before it's too late. I mean, it's you know. It, it, it's kind of funny because there's nothing hidden in the Sean Lennon video. I mean, it is exactly the imagery is exactly what the video is about. It's not like these like sort of subliminal messages that right. they're trying to like, you know, flash you like a weird hand sign or something. You know, it's, yeah. it's like, a, it's got Crowley, it's got Parsons, it's got L. Ron Hubbard, it's got, you know, Baphomet. Yeah. You know, there've been some really paranoid, crazy comments and stuff that have popped up on uh, Sean's video too. So, right. So, let me put my reflection on all this to you and see what you think. Like, t- to me, this is really fascinating from from the perspective of someone trying to research popular a culture, for want of a better term, um, because it's very mercurial. And as we've <laughs> just seen with with your description of your of how you came across the materials, you came across how you stitched it together into a video from a song from a music, a couple of musicians who are just already a, quite a crazy mix of influences i mean they have to be i don't know sean lennon or les claypool but i can imagine they come from completely different worlds 
And it's so mercurial. It's so hard to pin down. It's like this little moment. If I hadn't interviewed you about this and historians were trying to write about the way this particular cultural artifact were created in, in the future sometime, you'd never be able to quite pin down the details, you know? Um, and it's always changing, especially nowadays with the internet. It's all floating around. So we have your video, which is this very, very interesting coming together of different cultural strands. And it's, it's a certain reception of Western esotericism. Then you have this other video, which is this Christian fundamentalist guy, yet another reception of Western esotericism, because the Illuminati were a real Western esotericist group. Sure. Even though they have nothing to do with what the internet thinks they did do. There really are people called Satanists, although they have nothing to do with Aleister Crowley. Aleister Crowley really was a real guy who was doing stuff that, that indeed Christians would find totally objectionable, but it's not what they think he was doing. Um, yes. Do you know what I mean? Um, yeah, no, so, totally. I mean, I think you're spot on. So they've got this uh, narrative, and interestingly, a very powerful narrative. And, you know, you can dive into that world by reading the um, the comments on both videos on YouTube. That's the amazing thing. So if you read the comments on your video, it's people saying things like, you know, love that bass sound. And wow, Pink Floyd meets the Beatles. I love it. There's a, <clears throat> Is there a little bit of Sid Barrett in this? I totally dig the sound. And then you go, you go over to this guy and, and there's people saying like, God bless you for all the work you're doing to wake people up before it's too late. Antichrist is coming and I can't wait for the end times. Yeah, totally. <laughs> When will people learn? Like, you know, oh, Jesus, I love you. This kind of stuff. Um, yeah. But I, I think anecdotally, I haven't researched this in any kind of uh, sociologically significant way, but I feel like that world, the world of fundamentalist Christianity meets conspiracy theory in the internet echo chamber is like an enormous world in America and around the world, but especially in America. And there, mm -hmm. and that too is a place where a culture is being transformed. It's being, I guess you'd argue, anyone who knows anything about esotericism would argue that it's being completely misread and misinterpreted and um, almost laughably misunderstood, but it is being received and transformed into a, a new kind of worldview. You've contributed to that as well. <laughs> I mean, I guess so, you know, uh, it, 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 you know, it, it's been purely accidental, but it's at the same time, it's pretty fascinating to see. Uh, and I've mentioned to you before we started that, you know, I mean, I actually was raised in the South of the States here and, and, uh, there was a lot of religion around and, um, the, the idea that like, there's this kind of like media conspiracy against Christianity is not a new idea. When I was a little kid, I mean, they would always talk about how Hollywood's trying to destroy Christians. And, and then when you move to L.A. and you work in the movie industry or the television industry, you see how like people I mean, it, it seems very slick on television, but it's just barely held together with like gum and tape and everybody's rushing for deadlines. And the idea that there's this like really concerted, organized effort behind all of this stuff is really just nonsense because it's, you know, it's just people trying to get some stuff on the air and not get canceled or, you know, make a few bucks, right. you know. Well, you would say that because that's what Israel wants you to say. Well, of course, exactly. Yeah. So, <laughs> or what Satan wants you to say or whatever. Um, yeah. Or, or whomever. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah. 
fascinating fascinating um tell you what rich thank you very much that's an absolutely fascinating little interview really really cool really cool well i hope so yeah. we should probably just end it there even though i'd love to keep chatting with you just because uh, that's qu- that's quite no. a a nice little over a half an hour um very rich no pun intended uh take on things so cool rich ragsdale many thanks uh, i look forward to seeing your your work in the future i'm sure it's going to be some really interesting stuff we will link to all the films you've mentioned, hopefully, and to your production company and so on and so forth in the notes oh, cool. to this um, interview. And uh, stay esoteric. I, I will do my best. 